Good morning on this cold day. I'm Tom, and uh, welcome to the Leewood campus. Uh, I tried to cheer on the Chiefs, and uh, you know, the good thing about sports, you know, you cheer them on, but there's another year coming, right? Next year, we're going to get it, right? It was great. I did. I watched the whole game. I tried to cheer them on, and uh, <laughs> next year, right? Next year. Well, this week was not only a Chiefs game, this week was uh, Powerball Mania. Did you get caught up in that? Uh, I certainly did. I was amazed. I, you know, I don't know what you think about, but like $1.5 billion jackpot. I mean, that's enough to catch anybody's attention, let alone our whole nation. And uh, I found myself, you know, listening to Pharaoh Williams' great song, Happy. Um, and it was uh, put in the backdrop in one interview of a psychologist about lotterball or lottery, uh, jackball, uh, jack, anyway, Powerball lottery, that's it. Powerball lottery and uh, I was sort of thinking happy, happy, you know, and he's talking about this. And here's this is how he described it. He said, for a two-buck lottery ticket, we can all be eternal optimists. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? I have to confess, I didn't buy a ticket. If you did, that's fine, okay? Just, you know. But I kept thinking about it all week. And uh, the, the, the mirage of happiness, you know, the song, the mirage of happiness, of Powerball happiness shattered me all week. And I know sort of intellectually, you know, money doesn't buy happiness, but let me tell you, I, I felt the gravitational pull. Anybody feel that in their heart? <laughs> See, each of us this morning wants to be happy. It's just a part of who we are. Uh, it may be the lottery jackpot. It may be, you know, attaining wealth and financial, quote, security in different ways. Or it may be forming a special friendship, that soulmate relationship you always wanted to have, or have the perfect family or the perfect grandchildren. I have the perfect grand dog, but that's another story. And uh, it might be something that beckons you, something that you want to be, something you want to have, prestigious career or achievement, being part of the cool, you know, popular kids at school, all those things, or the perfectly in shape body. I mean, I've given up on that for a while, but we all have these sort of images, these mirages that beckon our sense of happiness. Blaise Pascal, a brilliant philosopher in the 17th century, looked across the landscape of time in a timeless way and said of humanity, all men seek happiness. That is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This is the motive of every action of every man, even, Pascal says, of those who hang themselves. As a nation, we are birthed in this barrage of happiness, right? Our declaration, right? Our founding documents tell us that we are about what? An inalienable right is to pursue happiness. We live and breathe and swim in the happiness world. The real question is whether we seek happiness in different ways. We all seek happiness. And the question that confronts us this morning is will we find the happiness our hearts so long for? That's the big question. Last week now, we were reminded as we entered our series again that following King Jesus means leaving an old way of life, an old way of living. And this morning, as we continue in Matthew, we are going to consider that following King Jesus means pursuing a new way of living, or more particularly, a distinct path to happiness. And this makes sense that Jesus would speak about happiness because Jesus was the most happy person who ever graced this planet. I mean, think with me for just a moment. Perhaps you thought of Jesus as wise, and you certainly should think of him as brilliant. 
Have you ever imagined Jesus as the happiest person in the world? The late USC philosopher and friend Dallas Willard writes so brilliantly about Jesus' brilliant and happy life. Dallas Willard points to Jesus' most famous sermon. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he writes. He says, As outstanding thinkers before him and after him have done, Jesus deals with two major questions humanity always faces. Two questions. First, there is the question of which life is the good life. And second is the question, who truly is the good person? And then he writes, it is for a very good reason that Jesus' teaching in response to these great questions have proven to be the most influential since such teachings ever to emerge on the face of this weary planet. Now, whatever you think of Jesus this morning, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, it is absolutely clear from a literary perspective that Jesus paints in brilliant hues on the canvas of Holy Scripture a painting or a picture of what the good life is and what a good person is. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he presents to us, right off the bat, a very different vision of happiness than we often have. We feel, as we hear it read, the intellectual dissonance and the experiential dissonance in what is called the Beatitudes. Jesus gives us a very different vision of the happiness that we often strive for. Jesus intentionally begins his most brilliant sermon and he turns our happiness world upside down and inside out. He tells us the happy life is not one that pursues power or wealth or prestige or fame or pleasure, but ultimately one that is apprenticed to him. Jesus says, follow me, the happiest person down the path to happiness. Bring a Bible with you in whatever form, turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the first book in the New Testament, chapter 5. Now, before diving in, let's briefly set this literary backdrop, because again, thinkers of all kinds have said this text is perhaps the most brilliant text ever uttered by a human being. So pray for me, would you? In our exploration of the four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, you notice, announces the king, the Messianic king, who comes from all people and is for all people. Jesus, the Messiah, the king, has now arrived. And Matthew, unlike any other gospel writer in intensity and proportion, continually drips glistening drops of irony in the text. It is just all over Matthew. Right away, we encounter this irony. Example, religious leaders who think they have arrived. In reality, they have not arrived. It is Jesus the King who has arrived. The religious leaders who think they are in charge are really not in charge. King Jesus is. And the religious leaders who think they have access to God and to his kingdom, his reign, because of their pedigree or privilege or power, we now see that the kingdom that Jesus is offering is not only open to the power and the privileged, but to the powerless and to the oppressed. So it's not surprising that Matthew, as he builds from chapter 4 to chapter 5, features the crowds that follow Jesus. You'll notice this all over chapter 4. It's like Powerball mania has hit the first century 
And it's Jesus mania. Rabbi Jesus is leading the headlines of the day. But notice Matthew will say in 4, chapter 4, these are not the crowds we might expect. They're not the crowds of the who's who. They're the crowds of the who's that. They are not the powerful, not the educated, not the elite. They are the masses of the powerless, the sick, the marginalized, and yes, the oppressed. So chapter 5 opens in with Jesus pulling away from this massive gawking crowd, pulling away on a hill and having a sermon for those who want to follow him or consider it. Now you will notice in this sermon, because this is what it is from chapter 5 through the end of 7, that Jesus does not begin with imperatives, commands, or instructions. Do you see that? Jesus begins with addressing your heart and my heart's hunger for happiness. Now notice, if you have your text open, or listening carefully, in verses, these 11 verses, nine times, you will notice Jesus repeats the word for blessed. Now, as you go through translation of languages, this means many things, but let me just capture this word captures really the sense of happiness. Happiness, in its full sense, are those who have access and standing in King Jesus' kingly reign. It's not because they merit anything by these characteristics, but because they are recipients of God's lavishing grace on them. Don't miss that. Now, the nine blesseds, or eight, depending on how you see this, uh, are often called beatitudes. But here's what I'd like us to think about them. Beatitudes is kind of a hard word. I want you to think of them as nine signposts right along the path of Jesus' path to happiness. As we start this path, Jesus said, follow me, what do we see? These nine are signposts. So let's dive in. The first signpost is here in verse 3. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now again, biblical scholars interpret differently both the individual meaning of these beatitudes or signposts, but also how they are arranged, how they flow, and how they cohere. We can see that Jesus has a sermonic theme. He has a big idea that's going to carry through the whole sermon. And that idea is the present availability of the kingdom of heaven that he is ushering in. The kingdom, it's a word that's not common for us, or or realm or reign of God, Jesus is going to say right up front is where the good and happy life is found. King Jesus will offer it to anyone who follows him and repents. But what does Jesus mean here by the poor in spirit? Jesus is referring, and Matthew accents this, to someone who recognizes their utter spiritual poverty. But if we look at Luke's corollary beatitudes in Luke 6, we also know that Jesus is talking more than just spiritual poverty. He is speaking also of all dimensions of human poverty, including earthly economic poverty. It's very clear in Luke 6. So when Jesus says, happy are the poor, he is not glorifying human poverty in any way. Nor is he inferring that somehow poverty is spiritual or meritorious in human salvation. No, not at all. Instead, Jesus is turning our happiness paradigm inside out. Happiness, he's saying, is reserved for those people, not who are just powerful, famous, wealthy, self-sufficient, and popular and strong. No, 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 there's another picture. And notice what the first sign says. Along the path of Jesus' happiness, the first sign says this. Happy are the needy, 
not the powerful. You say, how is that possible to be happy when you're needy? Doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But remember, Jesus, in his brilliant rhetoric, is embedding irony here. And Eugene Peterson, in his merit message paraphrase, which I encourage you to read this, because Eugene Peterson, I think, best captures the irony of Matthew here. Eugene says this, he says, with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. That's where Jesus starts. Recognizing our utter impoverishment is the first essential step in the path to Jesus' happiness. But notice the second one. Verse 4, they follow right on the heels of each other in sequence. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, like the poor of the spirit, or poor in spirit, happiness is usually associated, right, not with mourning. The word mourning here refers to a deep sadness, a kind of gut-wrenching anguish of grief when you lose someone close to you and precious. This word has a broad idea of the loss of God's good world because of sin and death, the brokenness of God's design in the world. It emerges in the mourning of the loss of a loved one, right? Dealing with disease, dealing with injustice, and everyday work tomorrow in the thorns and thistles of the work we do and the frustration of it. But most important, perhaps, is the accent with the word spirit before is the sense of this. It is a mourning of our own brokenness and sin. So what Jesus is saying on the path to happiness, the second sign that we encounter is this. Happy are the hurting, not the self-sufficient. How can heartache and hurt and happiness fit together? Jesus is bursting our happiness bubble. We often pursue power, don't we, and self-sufficiency and layers of all kinds of protection to guard us from loss and pain. But Jesus is saying, friends, happiness is found in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our loss. As we recognize our desperate need for God's gracious comfort and provision. Eugene Peterson captures the irony in his paraphrase again. He says, you are blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you to you. I want you to notice as we look through these signposts, the tense. Most of the emphasis is on the future tense of Jesus' words. It's clear here in verse 4. And there's something important we must not miss. Theologians describe this, going to impress your friends, as the already not yet aspect of God's reign. The already not yet the way I think of it is like this. I love eating. I love a good meal. It's one of the best things in the world is to have a great meal with good friends, right? Tasty, presented beautifully. And I also love appetizers. I love the main course, don't get me wrong, and the dessert, if I dare eat that. But the appetizers are important. They help us anticipate the real meal, the full meal. And this picture is really what Jesus is communicating. That the appetizer of happiness is available to us now. 
but the main course will be available to us in the future. See, even the mournful, facing the greatest loss, can find happiness in the loss, but it is just the appetizer. The main course will come later when Jesus returns and sets the world right. Jesus' path to happiness, notice carefully, is one that is within the material world, but it is also beyond and behind it. You will notice, and I encourage you to read this week, how Matthew beautifully previews this idea. In chapter 4, verse 16, he quotes Isaiah of the shadow lands of death. Because what he is saying here is that we live in the shadow lands of the already not yet. This is why I love C.S. Lewis, the movie on C.S. Lewis' life called The Shadowlands. Have you ever seen it? It's a great movie. And in Shadowlands, there is a gripping sense that in the cascade of the most intense grief, C.S. Lewis, after losing his wife, looking at that wardrobe in an attic with his son, the world crashes in on him. And the movie ends with these words. Lewis says, the pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. This is what Jesus is saying. The mournful can be happy because they find comfort in knowing the glorious future that is just around the corner for them. Now notice the third signpost, happiness. Jesus' path to happiness, number three. It's in verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Like the first two happiness signposts, Jesus now adds another, but notice how it's nuanced in the dimension of the poor and the hurting. He chooses meek. That's not a word we use very much, right? It's kind of a churchy word or spiritual word, but it's a really good word. Jesus describes himself as meek in Matthew 11. That's kind of a strange word to us. Meekness is not weakness. It's not passivity. It's power and love under control. Strength guided by love. It is not a doormat passivity. It's a basin and towel. See, meekness the path to happiness is not demanding one's way or having a prominent place on a visible stage. Jesus' happiness is found in meekness. And the third road sign along this path of happiness reads this way, happy are the humble, not the self-assertive. I mean, think about it. We do all kinds of conferences and seminars on being self-assertive and getting your own way as the path to happiness success. But Jesus turns that upside down, doesn't he? And notice he says, those who are meek will, will inherit the earth. That's a strange idea. It's not just land or, or pieces of dirt. It's a picture of the Old Testament of God's amazing covenantal prom promises to his people and the abundant provisions of the good life God has for us in all dimensions. It's the happy life. The first three signposts in Jesus' path point to what? Point to humility. And they push back against human pride. Rebecca DeYoung writes a wonderful book called Vain Glory. And she captures it well when she says, pride is the vice of putting yourself at the center of things, in God's place. Choosing your own way to happiness and believing any goodness or happiness you have is due to your own power or merit. A prideful disposition, she writes, says in effect, notice, I will decide what happiness is for me and I will provide it for myself. See, in our quest for happiness, we often pursue the path of power, of self-sufficiency, of self-assertiveness, 
Yet Jesus says his path is one of what? It's one of needfulness, one of mourning, one of humility. Now notice on the heels of the first three is the fourth sign, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you notice how Jesus uses the imagery of physical deprivation to point to extraordinary satisfaction? Hunger and thirst, right? If you've been really hungry, really thirsty, you know. It's all you can think about. It's all you long for. Jesus says, this is the path. And notice the word righteousness. This is a word that is really churchy and sometimes it's hard to figure out. I'm meaning righteous is someone who's self-righteous and their arrogance. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is describing a pattern of life not in conformity to our will and desires but a life in conformity and surrender to Jesus' desires and his will. And hear me carefully. Jesus frames it right away. Happiness, he says, is not about getting what? we want. It's about doing what God wants us to do. The fourth signpost on this path of happiness is happy are the dissatisfied, not the satisfied. Not, not, not the satisfied. Once we encounter the dripping irony here, we realize it's not the smugly complacent, it's the spiritual yearning, the dissatisfied, the ones whose heart long for more of God. Augustine, the great father of the church, said our hearts are restless, aren't they, till we find rest in thee. It's the restless heart that seeks for God that finds happiness, that follows the path Jesus lays out. Eugene Peterson, again, captures the iron. He says, you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. Fifth sign of happiness emerges in verse 7, doesn't it? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In Holy Scripture, extending mercy is often tied to compassion, to empathy and generous forgiveness. Over and over again, it's someone who is generously forgiving. Jesus will say this in his Lord's Prayer, won't he? He'll say, if we don't forgive others, will God forgive us? See, Jesus' happiness path is paved not with revenge or payback, but with compassionate love and merciful forgiveness. Fifth happiness sign in Jesus' path is happy are the compassionate and merciful, not the indifferent, not the pridefully calloused or self-righteously indignant of others and their failures and sin or those who have to get back at someone. Eugene Peterson picks up the irony brilliantly here. He goes, you're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you yourselves find yourselves cared The next happiness signpost is in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart language captures those who are devout in their faith. It's a picture of childlike innocence, a guileless transparency, a tenacious trust in God. And Jesus is saying at the end of the day, his path of happiness is not found in grand sophistry or intellectual sophistication or the cool cynicism that comes with it, or intellectualized doubt. Don't get me wrong, Jesus is brilliant. The Christian faith is brilliant. 
It calls us to everything our mind can grasp. But at the end of the day, it is a childlike trust. The Apostle Paul, one of the most brilliant rabbis of the first century, said to the Corinthians, I'm afraid for you lest the serpent should deceive Eve by his craftiness will also deceive you from what? A simple and pure devotion to Christ. The sixth happiness path, sixth sign on the happiness path that we see are happy are the devoted, not the sophisticated. The path to happiness is not ultra-sophistication. It's humble devotion. Now notice the seventh sign. Blessed, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they should be called the sons of God. Jesus is saying those on his path of happiness focus not just on being right or in winning a fight, but loving others rightly. See, loving a person enough to attempt to make peace with them is a distinguishing mark of being part of God's family. But Jesus is not only pointing to the peace between people, but the shalom, the idea of God's design of flourishing for all creation in every dimension of human existence. See, peacemaking moves us from a posture of coercive power to a posture of vulnerability. One of the most popular TED Talks ever given is Brene Brown's on vulnerability. Brene Brown is right, but Jesus spoke of it right here. What Jesus is saying on this path and the sign that emerges next, number seven, is happy are the vulnerable, not the strong. Doesn't this seem counterintuitive, friends? Jesus is saying it's not the self-protected, it's the transparent. It's not those who hide from others, but those who are willing to open themselves up to others. Those who are experienced true happiness and they bring happiness to a broken world. I was stunned this week when someone showed me the article that Richard Dawkins is the most vocal atheist in the world out of Oxford. If you saw this, this is stunning. So he looks at the religious wars and the evil in the world, however he wants to call it. Richard Dawkins said, it is the Christian faith that is our best bet to stop evil in the world. Richard Dawkins. Now, he's not believing the Christian faith, but there's something deeply about the Beatitudes in his comment. Notice how Jesus builds his whole sermon in the Beatitudes to the eighth and ninth one, and sometimes they're together. But notice the theme in verses 10 through 12. You can look at it carefully. It's persecution and rejection. Isn't it interesting that Jesus spends the most time on his path to happiness dealing with rejection from others, ridicule, and persecution because we believe in him? Happiness and persecution doesn't seem like a match made in heaven does it? But Jesus says, it is. On the path, the Jesus path to happiness, signs eight and nine come together in bold italics. Happy are the rejected, not the popular. See, many of us believe that being liked and being popular make us happy. We all like to be liked. I like to be liked. But Jesus is saying something here. 
that he is not only the most beautiful being in the universe, the most brilliant being in the universe, the most happy being in the universe, he is the most polarizing being in the universe. And notice that following Jesus will mean rejection and ridicule from others. Eugene Peterson says this, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you deeper into God's kingdom. That's the irony. And think about our day. Never before in the Christian church, in our history, have more followers of Jesus been persecuted for their faith. Not just people don't like them, but they're being raped, plundered, imprisoned, and killed around the world in unprecedented ways. Recently, we celebrated our dear friend, Iranian friend, Farshid Fatah's release from prison. Do you know that while in prison, those many years, Farshid, Pastor Farshid wrote a poem about joy in the midst of persecution and hatred. And this is what he said. He said, my wilderness is dangerous, but safe, because I dwell between his shoulder. What a surprising path to happiness we are offered by Jesus. It's a path that surprises, right? Happy are the needy, not the powerful. Happy are the hurting, not the self-sufficient. Happy are the humble, not the self-assertive. Happy are the dissatisfied, not the satisfied. Happy are the compassionate, not the indifferent. Happy are the devoted, not the sophisticated. Happy are the vulnerable, not the strong. And happy are the rejected, not the popular. The path to happiness is open to the who's that and the who's who. It's available. Jesus wants our happiness. We all want it, don't we? And the question for us, the reflection, and where Jesus has us right at the beginning of the sermon is, he's saying to us, and he said to his original listeners, will your pursuit of happiness bring you happiness? Will your heart find the happiness it so desperately longs for? And the question Jesus asks us is, what path are you pursuing for that? At the start of the new year, I can't think of a more important question to ask. Can you? It's a question I need to ask myself. I long for happiness. You long for happiness. It's the deepest longing in my heart. What path am I pursuing to find it? And will that path betray me? Where are you looking for it? In your career? personal achievement. Many, many people have pursued that. And they found, what, the ladder of success leaning against the wrong wall. You're pursuing happiness in the attainment of wealth and financial security. It's amazing how it can evaporate before our eyes. They're not bad things. They're, not, they're just not ultimate things. How are you feeling about the stock market's plunge in 2016? Paths of happiness are often pursued not in wealth or security, but in close intimate friendships and a soul friendship with someone or an intimate relationship. And these are good things. But have you noticed, you don't have to live very long to notice this, kids, students, but the best human relationship still leaves you empty and wanting more because you were created to have the ultimate relationship with God. King Solomon, who was wealthier than any Powerball winner, (laughs) 
one of the wisest person in history, man, he pursued it all with passion. Every power, every pleasure, every fame, every achievement, every wealth. And he concludes that the path that he pursued was a dead end street. Mirages that burst before his eyes. So Jesus is asking us not what path we will follow, but he's inviting us. Will you follow my path? Will you follow Jesus' path? In 33 years on this sin-ravaged planet, Jesus lived the happiest of life. The happiest of life. In his incarnation, he embedded and embodied each one of these qualities, this whole beatitude profile. Jesus walked the path of happiness before us. But let's not miss the irony embedded within the irony you see it? While Jesus is pointing us to the path to happiness, he's really pointing to himself where true happiness is found. Jesus led the most radiant life and the most radiant death. The path to happiness for Jesus led to the cross. And the path to happiness to you and me lead to the cross too. Jesus died on that cross as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. He shed his innocent blood. He paid for our sin and he offers each one of us freely in his grace forgiveness and new creation life. He sets us on the path that our hearts long for. A path of happiness. He invites us follow me in this path of happiness. The delicious irony is happiness is found in knowing and being known by the man of sorrows. It's a path of happiness that invades our lives individually and collectively, but it is ultimately the full meal we look for. But we taste the appetizer now. Martyred pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer found happiness on this path. In his brilliant classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says these words. Having reached the end of the Beatitudes, we naturally ask if there is any place on this earth for which the community which they describe. Clearly, there is one place and only one, and that is where the poorest, meekest, and most sorely tried of all men is to be found, on the cross of Golgotha. Now notice what he says. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. With him, it has lost all. And with him, it has found all. See, at first glance, the life Jesus invites us to, the happiness path, may seem inside out, upside down, but truly it is the perfectly right-sized life for you and me. It's the life you were created to live, and I were created to live. It's the life we long to live. It's the life that Jesus made possible for us to live. But it is the life of true happiness that the evil one will unleash all hell's fury of hatred and deception to keep you from having. And he will divert you to other lesser paths that betray you. Jesus refers to the enemy of our souls. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Your happiness and mine. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have happiness. You might have life and have it abundantly. 
Friends, the path to true happiness is not found in the demonic, deceptive mirages of power, pleasure, wealth, fame, you name it, but in following Jesus. The path to happiness is about following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you invite us to the happy life we long to live. May we follow you as you give us the greatest invitation imaginable. When you said to us, because of your work on the cross, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble and gentle of heart, and you'll find rest, you'll find life, you'll find happiness for your soul.